This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Daniel Rodriguez, head of marketing at Alice. Previously, Daniel served as the VP of marketing at Seismic and was the co-founder of Indivly. On this episode, Daniel talks about AI and the human touch, marketing sales alignment, and much more. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Marketing Trends. This is Lauren Baccarello here in sunny San Francisco. And today we have an amazing guest, Daniel Rodriguez. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing very well from mostly cloudy, cold and rainy Boston. So thanks for rubbing it in. You're welcome. You're welcome. There, uh, the thing I like to tell my family all the time is winter is a choice. I have <laughs> seasons. Um, I think a lot of people here talk about the importance of seasons, but no one here talks about liking spring. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> I I like one season, temperate. Wait. <laughs> yeah. But um, other than how amazing Boston weather is. We would love to jump in, talk a little bit about you. I think today during Marketing Trends, we're going to talk a little bit about AI and how marketers can use AI and one of my favorite topics, which is defeating an incumbent. What are kind of David and Goliath stories and see where, see where the wind takes us. That sounds excellent. Yeah. No, thanks again for, thanks again for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. And I think you were going to do a much better, much better job telling the audience about you. So Daniel, tell us a little bit about you. How'd you get into marketing? Yeah, no, I think, you know, it's, what's funny is I, um, I still joke that, you know, I'll let you know, you know, what I'm going to be when I grow up, when I figure it out, you know, now with like three children and like actual responsibilities, I probably should start to, to settle on something. And, and, and uh, marketing seems to be one of those things that is that I'm settling on for sure that I really love and enjoy. But I did not start out my career as a marketer. Um, I, I started as a strategy consultant and then worked in finance. So the first six years of, of my career did not have anything to do with being on the operating side of a business. I was kind of one degree removed from the operating side as a consultant and then as an investor, investing in firms that actually then invest in companies, I was actually, which is called a fund of funds, um, which for those of you who don't know that exists, it's kind of mind blowing that that even is a thing. But uh, I was two levels removed from the operating side there. So I was kind of going away from the operating side in ways that started feeling like I was having FOMO about just the operating side. I really wanted to really wanted to roll up my sleeves and really wanted to help build a company. So sometime around my you know, late 20s, started uh, listen, you know, really thinking about some of those John Mayer lyrics from uh, Why Georgia and having my quarter life crisis and thinking, you know, like, I should probably actually just go do the things that I really want to not have regrets about so that I don't actually have regrets about them. So 
I was really passionate about wine. I continue to be very passionate about wine. And so I was like, well, I need to just do something that's on the operating side that's, you know, that's, that is in the wine space. So I, I found a, a local wine startup called Drink and I was doing the kind of nights and weekends, you know, moonlighting thing there. And that was really my first kind of foray into the, into the startup tech world. And then when I went to business school, I used that time to kind of transition into wanting to try to get uh, one of my own startups off the ground. And that was in the, yeah, that, that, was a, that was a marketing technology that, that was definitely kind of living in the same world as HubSpot and in a different version of my life that got off the ground and was acquired, you know, by HubSpot for $10 million or something. But instead, it just flamed out and, and nothing actually happened. Um, so the actual version of my life involved me needing to go get a job after business school. Um, having had some of that, you know, entrepreneurial experience, you know, in the marketing technology space, I was then going and talking to a lot of early stage companies. And it was interesting because it was like, well, what are you going to do here? You know, and I remember actually one of the HubSpot guys, Darmesh Shaw, came came into uh, one of our business school classes and, and put it really well. He said, you know, you're going to, you're either, you know, building it, you're selling it, or you're getting in the way. And I have no idea how to code. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to help like do stuff to sell it. And really started realizing that some of the stuff that I felt like meant selling it had a lot to do with actually positioning and and how do you actually go out and get people's attention and and generate demand. Well, I think a lot of what I just kind of naturally gravitated towards uh, had to do had to do with marketing. So I joined up with an early stage pre-Series A funded company that had just recently rebranded its company name from New Pitch to Seismic um, and joined as as their uh, as their VP of marketing. And we, uh, you know, experienced you know a really incredible run over the course of the, of the five years that I was there, and definitely, you know, a trial by fire, and as to what it meant to be a, um, a you know, B two B marketing leader. And then for the past little over the past year, I've, I've, uh, I've been here at Alice. And then right now at Alice, you are the head of revenue. Yes, that is true in its technical definition. But I mean, I've, I've been spending a lot of time when I when I joined Alice, single founder company, and I think a lot of my experience as well as you know interest was lying in trying to really just help get the foundational pieces of the go to market team built. So when I when I joined, you know, helped get the kind of sales going and generating some of that those first uh, SaaS dollars. And helping get customer success off the ground, obviously with the help of other people doing doing a lot of work. And you know, as I sit here today, I'm spending a lot of time really trying to get the the marketing function off the ground. And given this is the area that I'm interested in, I you know I, I definitely I definitely think of myself as kind of running the marketing organization here. I would love to dig into some of the work you did at Seismic, and then also transitioning from even though your job is predominantly marketing all of the, the other scope that you have at Alice it is always interesting for marketers to use our strategic way of thinking and other, other functions. But I know I'm definitely familiar with Seismic and some of, um, sort of the progression and the evolution of that company. I'd love to, to hear about your time at Seismic and what you did sort of defeating and taking down an incumbent marketing market leader. Yeah, so I mean, the, you know, the story of the story of Seismic, I think, is is one where Seismic was a completely unknown entity. You know, when I joined, and there was, you know, I think, you know, Benioff's book, you know, Into the Cloud, he talks a lot about, you know, the importance of having an enemy and choosing an enemy. And I do remember before I even started the job, I hadn't yet graduated. I was like walking around campus at business school, and I get a 
a text or a, yeah, get a, some type of message from the head of the sales organization. And he was like, you know, this company called Savo, we need to take them down. And I, I remember thinking like, this was like a link to their, this like huge conference they'd put on. And there were like, there was like huge production. It was like, you know, it looked like there were maybe a thousand people there or something. And, you know, and here we were like, we didn't have any people in the company yet, like less than a million dollars of revenue. <laughs> like I was like, wow, uh, is that supposed to be done like this year or how, like, <laughs> you know, like what is the, what is the expected time frame on this, on this type of thing? You know, and then you fast forward uh, just about five years to the day there and, and Seismic actually acquired Savo. Um, so it was one heck of a, a journey. It did take quite a bit of time, but yeah, we did, we did some pretty interesting things. So yeah, let, I don't know if you want to just have me go on this like tangent about that whole thing, but, but I can talk a little bit about what we did, particularly, you know, on the marketing and sales team to actually kind of make that happen. And I, and I, I also, I guess I'll preface all of this by saying this is not rocket science. I don't believe any of this is any of these things that we do are rocket science, but um, I also would, would never want somebody who is now an employee of Seismic who was formerly an employee of Savo to hear these things and think that there was there was anything personal about this. None of this was personal. This was this was, you know, a way to motivate people and this was just kind of all the above board, you know, stuff that we were trying to do to basically survive and then thrive as a as a company. Um, so for all of those people, if any one of those people are listening, Seismic loves you. You're great. We're, they're so glad you're there. <laughs> so so yeah, would you like me to just share a little bit of that a little bit of that story? Definitely. And I will, and I'm, I also agree with you on the, having that enemy and having that, you know, the, the Goliath to go fight is really motivating. And, you know, behind the cloud, the Mark Benioff book, when I worked there, it was a big thing for us of who, who is the Goliath? Who is the, who's the enemy? And I remember all of the sort of, in the early 2000s, it was Oracle and having that, that North star and it sounds like the exact same thing for seismic and it's a lesson for every every marketer is sometimes especially when you are the smaller you're the smaller company you're a startup you're building having that this is who we're going after this is the hill we're going to climb provides really clear motivation it provides a really clear north star and a really clear direction for your team for sure and you know again i i think it i think it helped to rally everybody you know the um you know very you know very early on it was obvious that that was the shared common enemy common bond and i i would also say i think you know sales organizations in particular i think are are very competitive people you know there's a lot of like former athletes like people are passionate about it and talk about these things around competitors i think in somewhat blunt and oftentimes like violent, like warlike type of language. And it's maybe a little bit overly done, but at the same time, like that was how we talked about it. And that's how I, that's how I chose purposely to communicate about it. Even though I think at times it felt a little excessive, like I don't actually believe that I am a general and we're going into a battle, but like people, I think really got amped up about those things. If I'm a, whether a startup or a bigger company, and I want to do some sort of competitor takedown campaign, incumbent campaign, and really motivate, motivate my team, what are the, the top things you'd recommend doing, how to start, what works for you? First of all, I think it's important that you have symbolism. So one of the sales leaders bought a dartboard, and it had 
Savo's name on the dartboard. And, you know, when people are blowing off steam, they're just like over there, like hucking darts at the dartboard. And you could see people like throwing them a, like a little harder, you know, as they're just like looking at that dartboard and, th- and, and, and thinking about it. The reality was we actually weren't even getting into we weren't even you know getting into the bake-off yet those in those early days so like phase one of taking down the competitor was actually just making sure we were part of the bake-off like there was a very strong belief within the organization that if we were actually at the table at the right time at the table then we could win so phase one of that strategy was was more of a, a top of funnel focus on making sure we could get opportunities created where we knew they were going after those opportunities as well. You know, and, and Savo was owning the more enterprise side of the market. And that was an area that from a product capability standpoint, Seismic knew they could go after. You know, that, that's what we decided to do. I think as it progressed and it became more clear that we could compete once we were in the bake-off, and this is now, you know, a couple years later, we started taking, you know, a, the second kind of prong of this approach. So the first prong is, you know, just try to go after Greenfield um, and make sure you're showing up in the same Greenfield. And there were a lot of things that we were then doing around our demand gen efforts to make sure that we were showing up in some of the same places that Savo was showing up digitally with events, with the names, you know, the, the types of companies and the types of industries that we were then that we were then focusing on. The first phase, again, was just going after kind of Greenfields being in the bake-off. The second phase was then making sure that we were trying to, um, that we're trying to actually go after their existing customer base. So this was like a much longer term challenge for us because Savo was signing, most of the time they were, they were signing three-year contracts. So the window, the window didn't open very frequently for us to even be a consideration. And it's a pretty high hurdle to get somebody to switch both Seismic and Savo as solutions were embedded within, you know, within organizations in certain ways. Um, so there was a lot of, there's a high barrier there to switching. The switching costs were not just, were not just monetary. So um, what we did was over the course of time, we assembled what we believed to be uh, their top, I want to say probably 75 or 80 customers that we pieced together through a combination of sales conversations where we had called in and somebody would say that they were Savo a customer and a publicly visible customers that they said that they had. And then I think at a certain point, there may have been some of the intent signal companies uh, that, that we had that, you know, kind of say like, oh, you know, are you looking for, you know, like a list of, of who has, who has Savo, but I'm not, I'm not actually sure that that was part of it. Um, and it was, a, so it was a spreadsheet that basically got put together over the course of, you know, about 18 months the whole effort, you know, we dubbed Operation Dartboard because of that Savo Dartboard that we had. So it was it was ODB. You know, we then started putting content together on the on the product marketing side to make it easier for people to make the transition. And then we started doing things from a pricing incentive side to make it easier for people to to make that transition over to Seismic. Um, and there was some success with with some of the existing customer transition that that we had there. But again, it was a long slog. You know, it wasn't something that, like in any you know six month period of time, it felt like there was a significant you know, amount of new revenue that was coming over from existing Savo customers. But over the course of time, I think, you know, there was some, there was some pretty substantial progress made there. So it was, you know, really trying to erode their existing customer base while then beating them 
to new customers. And I think we had data that was suggesting that we were probably doing a, you know, at Seismic doing a better job uh, than they were kind of in, in some of those head-to-heads. And I think that kind of helped propel. And there were a lot of different kind of you know, market factors that were going into the places in the life cycle of each of those companies. So I wouldn't say that this entire thing happened because of this you know, very account-focused strategy. But it was very purposeful. It, you know, it had a name internally. I remember standing up on stage at a sales kickoff and explaining this is you know, basically how we are going to you know, mortally wound Savo this year and they will then fall the following year. And we used this David Goliath reference literally as we were talking about it. I think it was very effective to communicate it that way. Awesome. No, and it's, I love the the symbolism and the storytelling and there's so many lessons we can take from it, not just for the sort of incumbent takedown campaign, but whatever we're doing as, as marketers, we need to make sure we are bringing in our internal teams. They are aware of what's going on. They're excited and they're they're behind it. We can't just sort of sit and push campaigns out and try to generate new leads and work with customers. There is that really important internal marketing and internal narrative that we have to build in parallel. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was um, it was easier in certain ways to create that narrative again because it it aligned so much to like a very a rah rah sales type of thing. You know, it was it was something that people got excited about. I got excited about it, and it mattered to people. Right? It was like hey, I'm telling you like what we're going to do on the marketing team to try to help you win more opportunities, win more deals and, and get bigger commission checks. You know, like that's also speaking sales language. They really care about that. So now you end up buying your, acquiring your competitor and Seismic is now the, the leader. So what do, you, what do you need to do as the market leader to make sure you're not vulnerable to be being taken down by a new upstart? Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole separate uh, podcast. You should probably interview uh, John Regan, who's now the CMO at Seismic, to talk about that. Because as I was leaving Seismic, the acquisition was just happening um, of Savo, and I I think from a you know probably from like a revenue and a market cap standpoint. You know, Seismic had eclipsed Savo in terms of size before the acquisition had happened, but then with the acquisition, clearly a much larger company. And we were, when I was at you know the last year that I was at Seismic, I think that you know in terms of analyst reports and stuff like that, I think we were being considered by the market as the leader. And we switched from it was a very quick switch. It was like, hey, three years ago, we're like literally telling the. David Goliath story and we're David. And then all of a sudden we have this huge bullseye on our back. And like, I would be naive to assume that, you know, there aren't several companies out there right now. And, you know, even two years ago that had seismic on their dartboard. It was kind of a very odd experience. I actually, I feel like I struggled a little bit. It's harder to choose an enemy that is then like up and coming to you because they are inherently less of a threat than you are to them. So it's this like very unequal enemy balance. And so I, I think there was generally a little bit of a little bit of struggle in terms of like, how do you get people to take an enemy seriously that is much smaller than you? And by seriously, I mean, not that they aren't real, but like that you don't look down upon it in some way where you're like, oh, they're just smaller, you know, which I think is a really dangerous thing for a, for a larger company to do, you know, but at the same time, you know, there's like always going to be competitors. If there aren't competitors, you're not in a big growing market. You should have John Regan on and, and talk about that part of it. Although he, that might be, that, that might be too trade secret because it's like happening real time right now. So maybe not. <laughs> 
And then switching gears a little bit, I would love to learn more about Alice. Tell us about this. Yeah. So when I left Seismic, it was it was a difficult, it was really a difficult decision for me to, to leave Seismic because I had so many people that I had really close relationships with. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty loyal person. Like I, I really, I was really kind of, you know, bleeding the colors there. But, you know, I was on the receiving end of a lot of pretty crappy outreach, you know, very like so-so outreach where it's like someone would either email me and like regurgitate something that wasn't interesting or cold call me or they would be sending me sometimes things. And it was always like anytime they were sending me something in particular, it was always like part of some kitschy campaign that was supposed to highlight some thing that was about like one of their product features or some like brand word that they were trying. And it, it, it always just felt like very self-serving and it felt like I was one of a, you know, one of a thousand people getting this thing because I was. And so there was actually one time when somebody at, at, at LinkedIn reached out to me and she was attempting to sell me some of LinkedIn's products, but she used information about me and my interests and saw like something about where I'm from and, and that I was interested in, in wine and, and uh, where I went to college and started ta- like relating something in her own life story about very specifically about that. And I was like, oh, I like immediately responded because it just felt like I was interacting with another human that was being real with me. And it just so happened that there was some intent that I had there also. And I was interested at that time and kind of very quickly like went down a purchasing path. But if she had used some of these other tactics, you know, I always had my guard up, you know, because I was a person that was getting a lot of a lot of that type of outreach. And I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way about this stuff. We're, We're just kind of like in this defensive mode. The reason that I came to Alice is because the approach that Alice is taking, we are trying to make you be real in this whole B2B madness that, that, that we're seeing out there with people trying to prospect into target accounts in particular. You know, if it's really valuable for you to get into target accounts, it's an approach that you should be taking that should be coming across as creating a kind of like wow experience and being really thoughtful. And that's how people respond. They respond when somebody looks like they've taken the time and energy and effort and done something that comes across as really thoughtful. That's what we're doing here at Alice. And it felt very compelling to me, having seen how broken I felt like the way that people were trying to get into target accounts, that felt like just an enormous opportunity. And I was really excited about about helping a company like that kind of get off the ground. I really like the early stage, really, really like the early stages of, uh, of a company's growth. You've been at a few early stage startups now. You know, you get better and better at it every time. What are some tips that you have for marketers getting into early stage startups? What are some things that we should start to think about and look at when you're just jumping in? Yeah, I mean, so marketing is one of the most quickly evolving practice areas within a company. And the approaches that people end up taking, oftentimes the ones that work the best 10 years later become oversaturated and then don't work anymore. A lot of times if you think about things from a channel perspective anyway. And so I would say, you know, it's important that you don't think of yourself as anything less than a fast follower, but even more potentially that you think of yourself as an early adopter. Because being early with a marketing strategy is going to, in all likelihood, be worth the risk than it is to be late, where you might be paying through the nose for for things that are that are going to be yielding, you know, kind of like marginal results. 
So I would say, you know, allow yourself to understand that, you know, if you're a first-time marketer, if you're a first-time VP of marketing, maybe the way that you learned how to do marketing in your previous role isn't necessarily how you would then execute it, you know, this time around, because maybe some of those channels, for instance, might be more saturated than others. So really being kind of open, open would be the first thing. I would also say that it's impossible to over-communicate. I've never heard of anybody saying, oh my gosh, that marketer communicates too consistently, too well internally and externally. It's like too too much. You know, no no one's ever said that ever. And I think I think one of the pitfalls that early in their career marketers can have, and I would I would characterize myself still as some someone that can fall into this, is just not doing a good enough job of beating the steady drumbeat internally as to what is the strategy, what is the positioning that we're continuing to hammer on, and allowing it to get to the point where it feels boring. And by that, I mean, you feel like you've said the same thing over so many times that it's not interesting anymore. I think that marketers sometimes want to like, oh, we need to have like a new campaign. So we have like new say, new thing and everything to kind of like keep themselves excited, intellectually excited about something. But the reality is like the market, I was like, the market doesn't know. The market doesn't know what it is that you're trying to communicate. And if you're at a fast growing company, Every six months, there's a lot of new people and they don't know either. So there isn't as much value, I think, in like rotating things around as as uh, at least I used to as I used to think that there that there might be. And then I know you've talked a lot about this whole idea of using artificial intelligence and human touch. And we keep hearing more and more about. AI and how we're all going to get smarter and more and more is going to go towards automation. And then there's also this whole idea that you talked about earlier of it really is about the connection and the personalization and getting to know, getting to know somebody. How do you think marketers can use, you know, artificial intelligence and have that human touch at the same time? It's a great question. I, you know, I feel like AI, first of all, is I think difficult for people to generally wrap their head around. I think a lot of companies talk about AI. It's unclear what in the in the technology solution is AI or not. But, you know, I think that if you can make technology put you into a position where uh, the technology is helping you come across as more thoughtful, more real, whether that's as your brand to the market or whether that's directly from one of your sellers to a prospect, I feel like those are areas where you know, where AI can be really powerful in terms of promoting some of that human connection. You know, there there are technologies that are trying to, I think, utilize utilize AI and machine learning to help with intent signals and targeting and so that it just makes your dollars go farther and you do a better job of going after the right people. But, you know, I think that as as that entire kind of practice area matures over the next over the next few years, you know, I, I still see this like the front lines of using technology is to actually do some of the the work that is time consuming to be thoughtful. And that's something I remember when we were at Serious Decisions last week, something we had talked about is you can't lose the sort of the heart and soul of marketing and you can't lose the the human touch behind a lot of it. And it doesn't matter how great technology is and how great automation is still having the the art to some of the science is completely critical. Uh, yeah, okay, I completely agree. I mean, I, I feel like we're at this age right now as marketers where the past 15 years between 
the impact that the internet has had on then like digital overall and then social media has had on digital from a distribution standpoint i feel like people are really good at digital and it can be kind of hard sometimes to to use digital in ways that then it comes across as as very real and very thoughtful and very authentic i mean you know i think video you know, people kind of getting themselves a little bit more out there is really one of one of the only ways that you can then help to create a lot more of an emotional connection. You know, if you're just using if you're just using digital to try to then just like serve up some of your downloadable content assets to the right people at the right time, like I don't think that you're really you're using digital for distribution, but you're not really connecting with people. You know, I think that in so many ways, this is all the Simon Sinek stuff. It's like, we need to then like be tapping into the emotional side. And, you know, as, as marketer here, and as what we're trying to bring to other people's organization by building Alice, I think is this notion that, you know, so much of what we view as things that connect with people and make them trust you and like you and want to do something back for you is the result of you taking an approach that comes across as I'm going to do something for you first. I am going to focus on something that is interesting to you as a person. I'm going to come across as real. I'm going to talk to you in a real way because, you know, like you are a real person and I care that we have a good relationship and we're trying to build this relationship, whether you're my prospect or you're my existing customer, or you're a partner of mine. And I think a lot of people also don't have any idea how to apply that entire philosophy and approach to the physical world when things actually are being done through physical channels. So we talk a lot about that here, you know, with obviously folks internally here as we're trying to um, as we're trying to understand this and, and, and be on the forefront of this. And, you know, our customers are, too. So do you know what time it is right now? It is. What time is it? Pardot lightning round time. Lightning round, Pardot lightning round. Here we go. This is the lightning round sponsored by Pardot. All of the questions are fast and easy, just like marketing automation with Pardot. Uh, so you haven't seen any of these questions ahead of time. Are you ready? I am ready. I'm strapped in. I'm ready to go. Thank you, Pardot. All right. And it's not quite as good as your burning questions with Alice, where you make a marketing leader, B2B tech leaders answer questions while eating spicy foods. You know, I'm, I just tip, tip of the cap to uh, Sean Evans at Hot Ones. You're, you're a legend and I aspire to you. So what is your favorite one day getaway? Uh, to somewhere where I'm drinking wine at a vineyard. I think that sounds like an excellent getaway. Uh, what is your favorite book you've read recently? Um, I read The Handmaid's Tale a couple months ago, having watched the show, and um, and it was it was a pretty compelling read. But the book that I still have been talking to a ton of people about is Sapiens. And if <laughs> if you have not read that book, it is very dense and it is a complete explanation of <laughs> the history of humankind, and it is absolutely freaking mind blowing. Please please go out and read it, and then call me and talk to me about it. I completely, completely agree with you on Sapiens. And my book that I think is an excellent companion book to Sapiens, if you really want to dig into um, the science of humanity, is another book called Who We Are and How We Got Here, The New Science of the Human Past. Read those two books in parallel. It is fascinating. Adding it to my, I'm going to add it to my queue. 
I unintentionally read them both together because I read multiple books in parallel. Fascinating to read them close to each other. Interesting. Wow. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about that book. I haven't cracked open. I just bought the uh, trillion dollar coach, which I think just came out um, not too long ago. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, gleaning some, some uh, leadership and managerial insights from that book. What uh, ad campaign have you seen recently that you're most envious of? I mean, all this, all the campaigns that I really end up seeing are, you know, B2C, I think, because they, they're the ones who have the big time dollars to put behind all of this stuff. Um, we're at like a really interesting time right now for, for companies to be, to be taking more socially conscious, socially aware stands about things. It's kind of a fascinating thing to see what Nike has done and what Gillette have done. And, you know, I, I think as a man being able to watch the Gillette advertisement where it was talking about, you know, the Me Too movement and male role in in the situation that, you know, men have created in this in this world. There's a lot of work that I think you know, and I'm a father. Um, there's a lot of work I think that men have to do in terms of looking in the mirror and and stepping up so that uh, so that we can kind of change the way things are and so that we can have more equality right now. And I think that Gillette to do that as a large company where you have a lot at stake um, to come out and make that stand. I mean, I and I'm a, I'm a, I readily admit that I'm you know I'm an emotional person. I'm I'm definitely a crier. I I saw that freaking ad. I was like commuting, you know, and I'm like crying on my commute and thinking, you know, not only is this incredible content, but it was, it was, it was really powerful for me to see a company feel like they were taking a moral position that I wasn't finding from government or from, from other leaders that, that you might want to be able to look to, to take that stand. No, I completely agree with you. I think that is a fantastic ad and it really appeals to the target audience. And you know, millennials and the generation after want to buy from companies that are aligned with their with their values. And smart companies understand that and are able to have these these strong positions on the world. And it's it is refreshing that you see companies like Gillette doing that. And you know, not just saying it's none of our business because it's everybody's business and how we treat people is everybody's business. And they have an enormous reach and enormous influence. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who, um, who runs all of, uh, all of digital marketing, or maybe all of marketing. I'm not sure he's, he's a very, very high up there at, uh, at Converse, you know, and he was talking about the, the enormity of the impact that their messaging has on people and talking about their, you know, he's talking about their LGBTQ, they've got products and campaigns and stuff. And like, it's difficult to make sure that you're getting things right, but you want to be on the correct side of it. And I think that that's like a real struggle. And that's, you know, that's hard for people that are at these larger companies, you know, because corporations tend to be a little bit, a little bit more conservative, you know, so it's, it's, I think it's difficult to then kind of really break out of these molds and, and, and really, you know, kind of take certain stands here at Alice, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the importance of what it means for us to have values as a company and stating those values and, you know, having them, posting them, hiring on them, 
talking about them to people. And the number one value that we have is giving first. You know, if, if you are going out there and you're trying to add value to other people and you are going out not with, you know, your hand open, but, you know, saying like, what can you give me? But instead, you know, like an extending and a handshake, like what can I do to help you? That's important and that's powerful. And that's, that's part of, I think, we want to work with people like that. You know, we're using that in a way to self-select into our own customer base. And I do think that that's important that companies, that companies recognize that you end up much more deeply, this is going back to the Simon Sinek stuff, right? You end up like much more deeply ingrained in somebody's mind and and body when, when you actually align at that value level rather than some like quantitative metric, like, oh, we'll get you, you know, two X, you know, performance kind of thing. Final, final question is what app are you using on your phone? That's the most fun. The most fun. Um, so I like to do crossword puzzles, but I'm not good enough to get past like Wednesday on on the New York Times. So I have like the New York Times crossword puzzle app. So like every like Monday and Tuesday, I'm really excited to be able to use that because it's a lot of fun. I'm trying to, you know, like do it quickly and everything. And I don't know if the word fun is the right word, but in terms of like value to my own life, the Calm app that I have on my phone, which I didn't even realize they're like a, it's like a unicorn company now. And I've been using, I've been using Calm for the past couple of years and I meditate daily. It's an incredible app in terms of the quality, the content, this woman, Tamara Levitt, who does, you know, narrates these, these guided meditations. I have no idea who she is. Like, I, I, I don't know what she looks like or anything, but like, I love her. You know what I mean? Like, she is like, she's my coach. Like, she's, she's my like personal guide. And so I just saw recently that they, they had raised some money at, a, I think, a, like a billion dollar valuation. And uh, I, was, I was very happy, uh, very happy for everybody because you know, that's a great mission for a company. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for being on Marketing Trends. Thank you, Lauren, so much for having me. And thank you, everybody. We look forward to having you listen on our next episode of Marketing Trends. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you 
can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.